Hi, I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and this is Newsfeed, where I talk to people at the intersection of politics, tech, and media. That intersection is right now where all the action is. I think as we saw in this year's election, politics and the media business have really become inseparable. We've elected a uh, essentially a media figure, an entertainment figure, president of the United States. We had tremendous success on The Apprentice, and when I ran for president, I had to leave the show. That's when I knew for sure I was doing it. And they hired a big, big movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to take my place. And I want to just pray for Arnold, if we can, for those ratings. The media political conversation is now really being centrally shaped and driven by tech platforms. Whether you're seeing news on Twitter or Facebook or watching television anchors read tweets aloud. President Trump is deflecting on Twitter, asking why isn't the House Intelligence Committee looking into Bill and Hillary Clinton, adding the Trump-Russia story is a hoax. And these tech platforms, and particularly Facebook and Twitter, become totally central to our politics. For my first interview, I sat down with David Axelrod, probably best known as the political consultant who was central to getting Barack Obama elected president, but who is also a once and once and current media figure. He was a reporter for much of his career and is now the host of The Axe Files on a podcast that's also on CNN. And we sat down in his Chicago office. And one of the things I wanted to talk to him about was our, our own experience with what I think in some ways was the original fake news story of this of this political era, which was the whispers in 2007 that Barack Obama was a Muslim. And that was a story that in a way had found its straight line to the birther nonsense and to, in some ways, the media ecosystem that was one of the many factors that elected Donald Trump president. Again, out of exasperation, I think he said to Bob Bauer, who was the White House counsel at the time, would somebody just get the damn birth certificate? And so I asked David about that series of events about... um, about his own role in the campaign, which was in part tweeting things that made Hillary Clinton's staff just insane with rage, and about, about his own history, his, his own personal history with Donald Trump. I build ballrooms. He said, I build the most beautiful ballrooms there are. He says, you can go down to Florida and look at, uh, at it, and everybody says that. And about what he sees as one of the real central players in this whole ecosystem, which is Fox News. Okay, let's listen to the interview. Oh gosh! Now I need to like do my podcast intro thing. I'm not. You, you've done 120 of these, but um, but but I have not. You'll do all right. I have not. Done I have any. every confidence. But uh, welcome to Newsfeed with Buzzfeed Ben. I'm here in David Axelrod's office at the University of Chicago. I notice I'm surrounded by pictures of Barack Obama rather than of you, which yeah, makes he's you, more photogenic than I am. But I think in, in the political consulting industry, that's kind of unusual. Well, um, usually it's it's you shaking hands with, but I only I only see one David Axelrod. I do have a picture of my shaking hands with a pope up there, and there's one with me with Bruce oh, Springsteen. There's your wall of fame. Yes, Sorry. yeah, it's Maybe in a you corner. Maybe you are an asshole. Sorry. In a corner, but I but look, um, you know, my I had a wonderful journey with Obama, and very few people get the opportunity to have the kind of ride in history that I had. And you know, I grew up, you know very much steeped in all of this JFK and uh, doing campaigns in New York City where you and I both come yep. from. You've got a wall full of books behind you. Yeah, see some Kennedy in there. Yes. Um, so, you know, um, this is, uh, I'm, I've, I'm blessed, you know, to have had and, that, and, and that this experience. Is, this, is, this is a show about the, the intersection of politics, media, technology, yeah. things that are fully intersecting these days you right now you know you came up as a newspaper reporter became a political consultant 
White House official and are now a kind of, and, and I think are back to being a media figure. You've got a podcast that's become a television show on CNN and are, and are still, I think, a voice in the ear of a lot of political figures and um, somebody widely listened to. But I, the thing I wanted to start with and the moment I wanted to start with was is, is a media question, which mm-hmm. was in... I was just on your podcast, The Axe Files, which which uh, everyone should, which is yes, listen because he was very some, good. Some great interviews yeah. with with me, with the president of the United States, you know, <laughs> the former president. Um, I did but, him only because I couldn't get you, but so now I'm glad I finally. You, you asked him some questions that. nobody else would possibly have asked. What about him. the last president, the yeah. former president? I would like to do the current president if he do, if he listens to your podcast. You know, I I, I expect him to. Um, <laughs> the but but is to go back to Iowa in 2007, which was where yeah. we kind of first bounced yes. off each other. I remember you hanging out with you in some ho- filthy hotel lobby in Fairfield or something, yes. um, drinking cheap beer. And uh, and the the challenge that from that time that I remember really clearly and that I still think about a lot was that you would cover political events in Iowa and you would talk to people about Barack Obama and they would say, "Isn't he a Muslim?" And you would, and I would, as a reporter, would say, "No, no, not a Muslim Christian. Go read his book. He talks about it all the time. It's not even interesting." Um, and they would say, "No, I think he's a Muslim." And you would hear this constantly. And and when you went to the campaign, and when I initially, when I would go to you guys and say, "Hey, there's this thing out there that people seem to think that your candidate is a Muslim, and that's clearly part of this," that you would the press staff would say it's incredibly irresponsible that you would even mention that to be much less consider writing about it (laughs) yes like this is the yellow press go back into the hole you crawled out of never even speak these words to me again yes and then i think as the campaign yet you wouldn't go back into your hole well i did go back into my hole for a bit because it seemed like it was the very traditional rule in media is that you don't go repeating false rumors it is a tough thing right and i and that was the moment that it felt to me that something had that both the press and the campaign in different ways were wrestling with this question of what do you do about that? Do you engage it frontally? Do you, or do you, or do you just ignore it? And I wonder, I was, and I know how I thought about it. I'm curious how the campaign thought about that, how that first came on your radar. Well, look, we had different interests than you had. Obviously our interest was in not, uh, uh, in not ramping up that story by giving it more exposure. How did you first encounter it? This notion that I don't know that that there was that, that there was some kind of attempt to treat Obama, this candidate of yours, as like alien in some sense. And well, I mean, it, you know, I think Fox changed. News did a piece uh, relatively early saying that he was uh, uh, educated in a madrasa and uh, you know in in uh, Indonesia and you know so there were early intimation and look when he announced it i was dealing with this way back when when he started running for the senate in illinois and he was a state senator he was a friend of mine long shot i really had a high regard for him and decided that uh, you know i wanted to try and help him and as we went around to try and persuade the political community that uh he would be a strong candidate you know you heard a lot of what you heard back was hey Barack Obama, it sounds a little like, this was 2002 when we started these conversations, it sounds a little like the guy who flew the planes into the building in New York, and, you know, uh, people are going to have questions, and um, so, you know, we dealt with it uh, right from the beginning, but obviously what what creates the, um, the energy behind these kinds of things 
is social media and you know determined campaigns to try and spread these these kinds of things. And the other the other difficulty for us, frankly, was we didn't want to dignify the idea that if he were a Muslim, that that was somehow something to apologize for, that right. that was bad. So that was a, another bit of uh, uh, awkwardness about the whole thing. Um, but look, even as we sit here today, Barack Obama has to be one of the perhaps the best known, along with Donald Trump, people in the world. And there's still, if you poll in America... Uh, and it has a very partisan skew, significant number of people who say they believe that he's a Muslim, despite all evidence to the contrary. And that's kind of a reality of the world in which we live. And did you think about and have conversations about, do we not dignify this with a response? At what point do we talk about this? Do we talk to reporters about it? I mean, I remember it felt like a switch flipped one day, and suddenly your press staff was saying, all right, we're going to talk to you about our strategy for combating these lies. We're going to be open about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't exactly remember what the, what the hinge moment was on that, but you do get to a point where you make you make judgments as to whether this is seeping into the, dis, the public uh, consciousness in a way that is threatening to the enterprise, and uh, you make a decision as to whether there's more to lose by not talking about it than talking about it. Uh, but, um, you know, a lot of what our campaign in 2007 and eight and was about was uh, a lot of what his speech in 2004 about uh, was about at the, the Democratic convention. That was, as he would say, ra- uh, you know, wrapping his story in the larger American story. And we didn't want to take side trips uh, into other issues, what be that race or faith or and um, and so, you know, but you respond to events on the ground and when things, you know, and there was no doubt that opponents uh, were, um, you know, fueling maybe not maybe not candidate opponents, maybe interest group opponents, but there were people out there clearly uh, kind of spinning that story. And I think that, now that is, that is not new, the idea that people around the opponent, opposing candidate are spinning stories. I mean, I've, when I was at the Jewish Forward, there was a story that a candidate who claimed to be Jewish was perhaps Christian, you know, like this stuff, this stuff goes, and I think every campaign you work on, there are people whispering that the candidate has been unfaithful to their spouse. I mean, there's, you know, whatever the story is, it's out, it is being whispered. And it's, did you feel like in, you know, seven that the advent of social media, I would sort of include email forwards maybe in that social media had made it harder. It meant that it wasn't just being whispered to reporters that it was spreading in a different way. Yeah. Uh, there was some of that. Um, at that point, I think it still was a lot of what Fox was doing. And you know they could ignite something uh, that would uh, that would get legs. Then it was kind of a central gathering place for uh, conservatives. And um, you know when they did the Madrasa story, we we saw that as a major issue that we had to deal with. Uh, luckily, um, uh, CNN uh, of their own volition sent someone to actually to to Indonesia to actually investigate the story and knocked it down pretty quickly. Fox had to stand down on it. But it was just the beginning. It wasn't what we see today. I mean, you didn't see the sort of manipulation of news that we saw in this last election where, you know, some 18-year-old in, uh, you know, uh, some far-off places. Macedonia. Macedonia, yes, uh, making money by manufacturing 
uh, stories or others inspired by Russia uh, making up story. I mean, this this is this was the development of 2016. And it may be that it happened incrementally over time, and that you know Obama had been the target of some of this stuff uh, in uh, during his presidency. But back in 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008, it was still a little more primitive than that. Did he laugh it off? Did you laugh it off? Did you think it was ridiculous? Um, I think he. Uh, I don't think he laughed it off. I think he found it exasperating that people, you know, he he had written about his faith. He had told his story a lot of times. He he found it hard to understand why how people could still accept what was patently not true. And so, you know, I would I would say he was more exasperated than amused by the whole thing. Do you think the the like the non Fox media either? let those fires burn when they shouldn't have or spread them inadvertently? Do you think the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, had a role in that? Or do you think that was something that happened totally apart? You know, um, I think they probably were making the same judgments uh, we were, which is how much is this a meme in the public? Yeah. And if it isn't a meme in the public, should they be doing the story? Um, so they were going through the same struggles uh, we were, um, but you know, I mean, on the birther story, which went on for years in part because of Donald Trump, it obviously, you know, the president would get questions about it at press conferences and so on. I mean, ultimately, again, out of exasperation, I think he said to Bob Bauer, who was the White House counsel at the time, would somebody just get the damn birth certificate? You know, there was a, there was a sense of, well, I don't, you know, before that, I think it was like, I'm not going to dignify this. Yeah. I'm not going to release this. And then it was like, this is nuts. Just get it. Let's get it out and get this over with. Yeah, do you think we've lost the ability to dignify and not dignify things? Maybe. I think, you know, um, things things fly so uh, rapidly now and from so many different directions that it's really hard to make good judgments about these things. One of the things that I found difficult uh, when I was in the White House, and that was you know, now many years ago, it's like 2009, 2010. Even then, the media environment was so frenzied that um, you can occupy yourself every single moment in the White House chasing rabbits down a hole. Some crazy story comes out of nowhere. And if you overreact to it or engage in it too much, you can send the whole day you know, uh, or several days headed in. And we're seeing it now. I mean, some of, I mean, Interestingly, in this case, it, sometimes Donald Trump is the guy who releases the rabbits, and then he chases, and then his whole his team has to chase his rabbits down the hole. But the hardest thing in the world, when you're either a candidate or particularly the president, is you have a story you want to tell, and you've planned it out, and you've thought it through, and and then something happens that's completely unexpected, and it hijacks the story. And so keeping sort of staying on the road is a very difficult thing. And uh, it's become more and more difficult because of the modern media environment. Yeah. I mean, it feels like there's almost, there's a fairly straight line from the Muslim story to the birth certificate stuff. And there were sort of little subdivisions of it around his transcripts and around whether he was, whether he was born in Hawaii. There's a sort of whole cluster of them, but it feels well, like it was a pretty straight line. And, when the, and the Muslim thing kind of seamlessly and with the same people 
transformed itself into the, well, maybe he's not a Muslim, but he was secretly born in Kenya and smuggled here in a basket. I mean, it was, and I guess I, you know. I guess I didn't hear that one. That sounds like. I mean, the birth, that's fundamentally what the birth certificate was about. But at some point, that was the birth certificate story. You do have to come up with a fairly exotic way of getting him here. Yeah. Um, But listen, you know, back up for a second, because there is something, there is a bigger thing, and 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 it resulted, I think, uh, in the election of Donald Trump, which is everything that underpinned those stories was the other, the alien. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of what drove the Trump candidacy and the power behind it was fear of the other, fear of the alien. And so, you know, this is something we live in times of revolutionary change in terms of our demographics, in terms of our economy, in terms of our culture. Technology, too. And technology is, I think, driving so much of it. And uh, the result, in fact, my concern about technology, and you're right in the middle of it, is it is churning so fast that it is outstripping our capacity to understand all the implications of it, uh, not just in terms of our politics, but our culture, our society. And um, But one of the things that's surely happened is because of the overlay of changes that technology have, has wrought on the economy and cultural changes that technology has also driven, you've, you, there's a tremendous backlash out there. And so that is why stories like uh, the, uh, the, the Muslim thing, the, the birth certificate, the other, the alien, found footing, uh, found root. Playing and, it back, do you think? Do you think you screwed it up or we, we in the media screwed it up and could have cut those things off at the pass? Or was this forces sort of I, I outside don't know. our control? I, I really don't know the answer to that. I honestly think the forces that are driving this are so large. This is not about small tactical things. This mm-hmm. is about something bigger. You know, and let's be honest. I mean, there's always been this strain in our society. Um, you know, uh, my father was an immigrant, um, and he, he was a Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe who came here in the early 20s. A couple of years after he got here, the Congress— basically dropped the wall on immigration, yep. and he was just lucky to get in a couple of years uh, earlier. But at that time, you read speeches. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin pointed out a speech to me from Henry Cabot Lodge talking about uh, the Irish and the Italians. That sounded just like Donald Trump right. talking it's, it's, about it's a pendulum Mexican, Mexican immigrants. It's a swung before. I, I did want to talk with you about, about Trump for a minute. When did, when did you first encounter him? Do you know him? I do. Uh, I encountered him for the first time when I was working in the White House, and um, uh, I got a call from an intermediary who said, Donald Trump wants to talk to you. And I said, we'll give him... uh, And and this person gave me his cell number, and I called him, I guess. And uh, this was at... And I've wrote about this in my book, Believer. It was at the time of the oil leak in the uh, the Gulf. And we, as you remember... uh, you probably were among the people who were tormenting us for the slow pace at which the and there was a live leak. stream just of the unbelievable. The oil just Somehow we could get Gulf. a camera a, a mile down to record the fact that oil was leaking, but we couldn't get anything a mile down to stop the oil yep. from leaking. And this would confounded everyone. But we were making good progress. Um, it's actually a great story. Steve Chu, the uh, the the brilliant uh, energy secretary who had won a Nobel Prize for physics, I was he, I, he, I walked into the cafeteria across from the White House, 
uh, one day, and he's sitting there, and he's jo- uh, jotting something down on a napkin. And I said, what are you doing, Steve? He said, I think I figured out how to stop this oil leak. And he starts explaining it to me, me, who barely got through high school physics. And so I said, you know what? You better tell somebody who can do something with this, because I'm not that person. And he said, no, no, you're right. I'm going to run over and talk to them. And it turned out to be ultimately the way we, were, we solved the thing. But we were well down the road on, act, uh, on acting on Chu's thing. And Trump called and said, um, it was kind of a familiar pattern that I've come to recognize now. He said, hey, he says, you know, that guy, that admiral you have running this thing down in the Gulf, he seems like a nice guy, which we now know is always a preface to some awful slam. And he says, but he doesn't know what he's talking. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he says, I know how to run big things. He says, send me down there. I can get this oil leak stopped. And I'm like, this is kind of bizarre. But I said, well, Mr. Trump, uh, I think we're close. But if we're not, you know, we should talk about this. But I'll, I'll call you back in a week or two. So we get it stopped. I call him back. He's, I said, you know, we we got this stopped. And he said, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I see that. He said, but I got another thing for you. He says, I build ballrooms. He said, I build the most beautiful ballrooms there are. He says, you can go down to Florida and look at, uh, at it. And everybody says that. He says, you, you have these uh, state dinners, and you have, the, you have them in these shitty little tents in the back of the White House. He says, let me build a modular ballroom for you that you can put together and take apart that is befitting the White House, you know. I didn't know what to do with this. And I said, you know, that's an interesting idea. I'm going to tell the social secretary to give you a call, um, which I did, and, and apparently the call was never made. And he, I think justifiably, was pissed about that. But he, he's told the story during the campaign, except there was one line that I don't remember that he does, and he, he said, and I said, I'd pay for the whole thing. You That's the one line you, I don't you, remember. You don't think he said that in the conversation, huh. but uh, and then I said, you, you know, you're uh, the to night yourself, before this is the next president of the United States. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's never once in those conversations did that occur to me. The night before the famous correspondence dinner, where uh, uh, you know, or Obama really humiliated took him, him a, took him apart. Um, I was at a uh, a dinner party that uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg had in. Uh, in Washington, and I was sitting next to Ivanka Trump, who I found, by the way, incre- very bright, charming. And then the next day, we, the Trump thing happened. But I called him the following week, and I said, look, I, I have to ascribe this to the mother, but you have a very charming and bright uh, daughter. And he was very responsive to that. And then the last encounter I had with him was when I shaved my mustache off, I did the slash the stash thing after the election 2012 to raise money for epilepsy research because I have a child uh, uh, deeply damaged by epilepsy. And this was largely done through Morning Joe. And um, Trump had made, as you remember, a $5 million bet that if Obama had uh, produced his birth certificate, that he would Pay, give $5 million to a charity of yep. uh, the president's choice. So I went on Morning Joe and said, we saved you $5 million, Mr. You, Trump, if you're watching. You, you tweeted it. Yes. Yeah, well, I, and I had pursued it on TV. And he came up with 100000 turns out, from his foundation. Somebody but else's Nonetheless, yeah. 100000 for epilepsy research. That enabled me to go to Mark Cuban and say, 
you can't let Donald Trump outdo you. And he gave me 200000 for this. And we this was very helpful in terms of our achieving our goal on this. So all, thing. all through this presidential campaign, I think the thing that, you know, the Clinton people were obviously on edge through the whole thing. It's in their nature. Um, maybe the thing that made them most irate were David Axelrod tweets and comments that she was screwing it up and Donald Trump looked pretty good. Did you yeah. hear, but did you perhaps hear about that from them? Yes. I, well, not from them. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had enough friends over there that I knew that there was some irritation about Did it. Did you just, I mean, do you feel like you have some, despite the birther, his sort of role as the birther king, it always felt to me like you had a kind of sympathy for him? No, I wouldn't say that at all. In fact, I was really, you know, I, I found so much of the, his campaign uh, offensive, the tone of it. The, the, the sort of willful ignorance uh, at times. It really wasn't that at all. It was a clinical judgment on my part. I, I also recognized that he was, you know, he, I, I was among all the brilliant people who said he could never, he'll never get past well, the summer. Yeah, and the, you were a little bit ahead. You, had, you wrote a piece, The Obama I, Theory of Trump. I did. Times, Ultimately, uh, I came around on that. But it was a clinical judgment about the, what Trump was doing. Yeah. And my tweets were t- clinical judgments about what the Clinton campaign was doing that I thought were uh, wrong-headed. And I know that it irritated. And I should say, parenthetically, Hillary Clinton was the pa- patron saint of Cure, the, the organization my wife started to fight epilepsy, was at our first event, worked with us on on the issue and um, you know and I worked on her campaign in 2000 so this was not uh, at all personal other than that I thought that they were that that they were screwing it up and um, you know I don't think history will regard that as unfounded concern you, you don't think history is going to blame skeptical David Axelrod no. tweets on her, her no her and I think that. history might say you know maybe he was right to be skeptical did, but did you, and I did wonder I mean, does Trump ever reach out to you for no. advice no, I, I I had a conversation, a couple of conversations with uh, Jared during the campaign, yeah. because Ivanka had emailed me and said, "Would you talk to him?" Yeah. Um, but um, I, I don't expect that I'll, you know, I don't think I'm on uh, the speed dial at the White House. Although, I, again, I'd love to have him on my podcast. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I think that would be fun. Um, he, I saw you tweeted that at him as well. Yeah, you I mean, might pursue You make it. pretty good use of Twitter. I, I do. Yeah, I, I'm embarrassed to say. You know, but I think you know, he said he tweeted the thing. I think the thing about, like the nice, the, the the most positive thing Donald Trump can say about a person is that they were nice to Donald Trump. If you noticed that, and he said that uh, he thanked you for your nice words on CNN at one point, which I think is like literally the best, the mo- the highest praise. I can't imagine what Donald words Trump. they were, but uh, you know, look, my job on CNN, I feel, is to bring to bear 40 years of experience yeah. covering politics being involved in presidential campaigns. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, they, they, they have plenty of people who are there to carry the sort of partisan flame. And nobody is confused about where, where, what my orientation is. But, you know, I, if the guy does something that looks smart to me, I'll say he did something that looks smart. If he does something that doesn't look smart, I'll say he's doing something that doesn't look smart. Yeah. And just on the last, last thing I wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned Fox before. The, uh, and we, they're in the midst of this kind of insane rolling scandal. But I wonder, again, if just to go back to where we started this conversation with the, you know, with, with the Madrasa story in 2007, the beginning of this kind of long line of smears against Obama, what do you make of Fox News? I mean, do you... Well, first of all, of I, I mean, I, I, I've gotten in trouble before on this because I, 
it's wild, wild, wildly divergent. You know, Chris Wallace, for example, uh, does, I think, a really solid job on mm-hmm. his Sunday show. And I used to go on there all the time and battle with him. But I always felt like I got a fair shake from him. And I think he's a genuinely good journalist. And there are others there who, who are fine and, and, you know, fine journalists and do a good job. But, uh, you know, then, you know, you've got your sort of, uh, you know, your, 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 your nighttime lineup that's there to basically, uh, you know, fan some of these stories and do fan some of these stories. Uh, and you've got the morning group that seems game for any conspiratorial uh, theory. And the business model of Fox is very much uh, tied to that. So, and it's done pretty well. I mean, let's be honest, they're, they're a consistent, huge moneymaker uh, for News Corp and or whatever it is. I guess it is News Corp. Is that what it's called now? They're holding the yeah. I think well, it's still- for, but for Rupert Murdoch and yeah. his family, they've done very, very well. So there isn't a real impetus to change it. They've not paid a price for any of this. Uh, you know, for either uh, for for propagating stories that aren't aren't true or uh, for. Um, you know, some of the internal things that we've learned about, um, you know, I don't think Bill Riley's uh, viewership has suffered uh, any more than Donald Trump lost the election because of the Access Hollywood tape. Right. So, um, you know, it's um, uh, so what, what, I think so, it's a fact of life so, is what it is. So so what what would you tell if you were still in the business Democrats sort of navigating this kind of a media, a pro-Trump media that's, I think, you know, sort of rooted in Fox, but actually now kind of sprawling through the web, and that, and that I think is, you know, in some ways the kind of most dynamic new part of the. Well, media I think world. you've got to be vigilant. I think it's the, it's, you know, you, first of all, you have to be prepared to intercept these kind of missiles as they're being launched on social media, and you have to have an early warning system to know when they're coming down the track. And then you have to, you know, be willing to fight very hard when the, they, when they surface. But you're not going to shut it down. Uh, the one thing I think is that just as the media is more invigorated and other institutions, I think there is a more, more um, there's more awareness, public awareness now. I think people are paying more attention. So, um, you know, I think if you've got a BS story out there, I think the people who are swayable are paying more attention and are willing to say that's a BS story. I, I saw, you know, this coverage or that coverage uh, that knocked it down more than there was a certain complacency. One reason why parties don't win elections three times in a row is a complacency sets in, and there was a certain complacency that sat in among, set in among Democrats. Uh, that allowed this stuff to flourish without as vigorous a response, perhaps, as uh, there should have been. I don't think that's the case anymore. So I guess vigilance is what I would advise. And that means vigilance, uh, you know, not just in terms of responding to Fox after a story is aired, but watching as the storm clouds gather on social media and going hard after uh, stories uh, when you see them emerging. Yeah, I think it's yeah more sophisticated. I do think the audience is getting more sophisticated. I mean, in some way, that's our bad as well that we can talk to people about that kind of complicated mess and that they know what you're talking about increasingly when you yeah. talk about when you talk about media. Um, thanks, thanks for taking the time, David. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming to the Institute of Politics here at the University of Chicago, and good luck with this. 
Yes. But not too much. I mean, I just don't eclipse the Axe Files. You're That's such, you're, all you're, I ask. You're such a pro. I'm, I'm a mere amateur. Thank you. See ya. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And from here on out, we'll be releasing new episodes every other Sunday evening. There's a great old media tradition of doing media coverage on Sunday evenings just to fill some space in Monday's newspaper. And so I hope you'll stay tuned for the next episode coming this Sunday. Newsfeed is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, and Meredith Kennedy. 